Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hidden History Happy Hour. It happens to be St. Patrick's Day as we record this. This is our 48th episode, notwithstanding my repeated references to this being our 48th episode last time in London. It was not. That was just because, frankly, at the High Timber, thanks again, High Timber, we might have indulged in a little bit too much wine. Now, you'll notice, everyone, that the scenery is a little different today. That's because I'm in the fabulous studios of the University of California, Irvine. As some of you know, my day job is running a cybersecurity institute here. More importantly, this studio is the home turf of UC Irvine Professor of Physics and Astronomy and Dean of the Division of Undergraduate Education and Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning, Michael Denon. Michael, welcome. Cheers. Cheers. Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour. Oh, now. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming and well, letting us come in here. I really appreciate it. Now, Michael's education job is, of course, very important, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But Mike, Michael is also committed to popularizing science, and one of the ways he does that is on television. His TV credits in this regard include Spider-Man tech, Batman tech, Star Wars tech, and, most relevant today, ancient aliens. Michael... Talk about your role here and your role as an as an advisor, star of Ancient Aliens. Sure. First of all, I'm glad we still have time left after you read my titles. Because they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're quite long and they can fill the whole thing. Um, and in addition to Aliens, I do have to point out, not only are we drinking Guinness, but my research area is foam. Fair. And so Guinness is one of my favorite beers, not only because of how it tastes, but the great foam on the top. So when you look at this, do you just see a bunch of equations and things? Yeah, that tends to happen, sadly. Oh, that's great. So, but it tastes great. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I love the fact that I ended up on Ancient Aliens after an incredible route through superhero stuff. So most of my popular science is, has always been in the frame of superheroes, pop culture, um, you know, Harry Potter, magic, fantasy, right. Star Wars. Um, and that's really how I got started in TV with the science of Superman. But it just turned out that Prometheus, the production company that got me into all the superhero stuff, decided to do Ancient Aliens. Um, so they knew me already. They knew I didn't mind talking, you know, about almost anything. Um, <laughs> and so I did the pilot episode. Um, I have since become... Uh, I, my nickname for myself and others use it is the friendly skeptic. Yes. As as the person who actually thinks humans did a whole bunch of this stuff, but I'm more than willing to, uh, uh, you know, sort of speculate and think about it. And there's just, if you're going to talk aliens, you're going to be talking space, you're going to be talking space travel, you're going to be talking a whole bunch of really cool physics. Yeah. So that's fun to talk about. Um, and then it, it, there's this weird thread. So... You know, I, I do a podcast where we talk about popularizing science and we like to claim we make, you know, fictional science real. Um, but I also talk about science and religion. So I, I my final sort of label for myself is I talk about the physics of X where X is everything except politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a perfect person to have on. Uh, as you probably don't know, my father was a actually an Episcopal minister. No, I did not know that. But okay. he was very... 
especially for the 70s, very open-minded and expansive. And yeah. I'm sure lots of what he taught was not Episcopal <laughs> Church uh, doctrine. But also, on this show, we need our skeptics. And I think it's great that you're here and Alex is not here. <laughs> because this way we can slam his book, More Lessons from History. And let's just start with the title. Perfect. So Alex's first book on which this podcast uh, is based was called Lessons from History. So when he got another contract and they spent millions of dollars on marketing, <laughs> they came up with the genius title, More Lessons from History. But it is accurate. This is truth in advertising right here. Now, what we usually do, Michael, is we tell a story from Alex's book. We tell maybe another story that's not in the book. And we like to stress test our stories. And we've had uh, ancient Greek historians on. We've had Professor Buzzkill on. We've never had a professional skeptic around alien stories. And we love our alien stories for reasons that I will get back to uh, shortly. Now, our first story today uh, is one that those listening to our Twitter Spaces episode back in August of 22 or have read Alex's best-selling, cleverly titled, Four Lessons from History, <laughs> they already know this story. But I think most people probably don't. Then this is the story of the Foo Fighters. And no, I am not talking about the band, <laughs> although as a drummer myself, I would love to do a show about them one day. So here with, here, here to four, here fourth, right now, I'm going to do this Alex Dean style. Alex likes to just simply read from the book, because I guess he figures he put in all the work up right. front. <laughs> so why bother, you know, paraphrasing or turning exactly. it into something accessible? Now, because Alex is on assignment and can't be here, I'm going to break his normal rule, which is he does not like to be interrupted. I interrupt him anyway, but I also have no problem being interrupted. Okay. So at any point you want to jump in with anything, skeptical or not, please do. <clears throat> but now, without further ado, the story of the Foo Fighters. One night towards the end of the Second World War, in November 1944, Lieutenants Fred Ringwald, Ed Schleuder, and Donald Meyer were flying above the Rhine Valley north of Strasbourg. Needless to say, this is a little bit of a hot territory at the <laughs> time. They were part of the U.S. Air Force's 415th Night Fighter Squadron, and they all three of them saw eight to 10 lights flying in a row in formation. So they contacted their colleagues on the ground who said, we don't have another flight up tonight, so it's not allied planes, and whatever it is you're seeing, we cannot see it on radar. The fear that the American flyers had was immediate and profound, that the Germans must have developed something so much better than their technologies that it was invisible to radar. A little bit ahead of their time on yep. that one. <clears throat> and whatever it is, they were worried. Now, even at this late stage in the war, this would have been game-changing and seriously dangerous for the Allies. Brave souls that they were, faced with an apparent threat of superior technology, far more advanced than the aircraft they were in, in a force that greatly outnumbered them, the Americans banked, turned, and went to fight. But at that point, the lights disappeared. The Americans feared that people would think they were crazy, so they kept the stories to themselves at first. But more and more of their comrades started seeing the same sort of thing on their sorties, albeit with minor differences, sometimes six lights rather than eight or ten, sometimes red and green lights rather than just red, sometimes in a T-shape rather than a line, the same being inexplicable phenomenon of fast-moving, formation-flying objects invisible to radar. These kept occurring both in the French and German borderland area above Strasbourg, where the originals were sighted and later above Germany itself as the war progressed. They would close in on airplanes, follow them, fly level, and then disappear, seemingly under perfect control. Now, I know you're a physicist and not a military right. historian, but does that sound like anything that the Nazis could have had in World War II? So, partly yes. And, and one thing I know 
um, from because I did get to cheat and look at the story ahead of time. You know, I think an interesting thing skeptics try and do is name all the things that might be that are quote real, mm -hmm. right? Um, and sometimes that works. Sometimes that's fun. And I do find sometimes that's a little dangerous because it doesn't work as well as we we think as physicists. Um, you know, my first thought in reading it is, you know, we think, oh, radar evading technology so advanced and, and it was hard to get. I think sometimes we forget the radar wasn't maybe that great either. Yeah. Right. And so what you needed to evade radar might have been less than we think. So not totally crazy. I think the thing that fascinates me with all of these sightings is thinking through, okay, if you've gone to the lengths of, of building a radar evading plane, why would you have bright lights that you shine <laughs> when you fly around with another plane? So for me, it's not my first choice of explaining it, um, though it certainly is something I wouldn't rule out. Okay, but let me just push back there. Because yeah. I remember as a young lad with raging hormones watching <laughs> Wonder Woman on television. Yeah. And although Wonder Woman's plane was invisible, <laughs> you no, might recall you could still see, see Wonder, Wonder Woman. No, definitely. Well, this I think this was more a design flaw in the animation than the plane. I, her real plane, you actually can't see her either. Okay, um, fair enough. But but it is. But you know, it's certainly conceivable that you would be thinking, okay, I'm going to build the plane so ground radar can't see me. I'm flying at night. You know, the planes next to me need to be able to see me and not fly into me. And hopefully I won't run into an enemy. And by the time they're up in the air, we're going to see each other anyway and shoot at each other. So, again, wouldn't rule out that you would be radar avoiding and have lights. It's just one of those human psychology things right. that lowers it for me a bit. That's valuable. This whole event was almost 100 years ago now. And, of course, many countries have radar evading aircraft. They do have lights on them. But usually, hopefully, when they're in combat, they're not turning the lights on. <laughs> So let's continue with the story yeah. because this is going to lead into our, our second uh, topic. Okay, so the objects appeared to be wingless and cigar-shaped and were therefore named Foo Fighters because a comic called Smokey Stover of the day featured a firefighter who would say, where's the Foo? There's fire and call himself a Foo Fighter rather than a firefighter. Humor sometimes doesn't translate over time. Anyway, these accounts became so numerous that in 1945, they appeared in the press. And immediately, various explanations were insisted upon to dismiss the story of the Foo Fighters. They were flares, or weather balloons, or St. Almost Fire, also a favorite movie of my youth. Uh, a light that appears on the tip of objects and clouds in stormy weather. So what is St. Almost Fire, and could, could this have been that? You know, it, it really is an electrical kind of build-up discharge type of thing. You know, it mentioned it there on the edges. Sharp points, edges, those type of places, particularly with metal, is where electricity really gathers. You get a very high voltage there. High voltages in atmosphere lead to discharge. If you're in storms and clouds, there's a lot of extra static electricity around. So very common electrical discharge. Again, I kind of ag agree as, you know, spoiler alert, you're going to read. All of these don't quite align with what was being described, interesting as they are. And, as I think we're going to see in a minute, all the descriptions were highly consistent. And not just all yeah. these descriptions, but a lot of descriptions in the 100 years or 80 years since. Okay. Yeah. So, these were St. Elmo's Fire, these were flares, these were weather balloons. But flares look like flares. They go up and down and don't fly in formation. Weather balloons can't track planes or outrun them and don't fly in formation either. And this, to me, is the most persuasive on the non-skeptic side. These men were pilots. They'd seen all these phenomena plenty of times, and they knew what they were, and they knew what they weren't. And also, they're in combat, 
you know, fighting for their lives. They're not on some lark trying right. to figure out, uh, you know, a scientific theory. Okay. With these points dismissed, critics then tried to say that those claiming to have seen the Foo Fighters must have been cracked during fighting, the polite form being the suggestion that they had combat fatigue, or what we would now call PTSD, but really the implication was they weren't of sound mind. Which is a hell of a premise to deploy when talking about <laughs> those that one's country entrusts with tons of flying metal with guns attached, but let's consider it. These men had been tested for their physical and mental robustness regularly, and of course in those days it was all men. Uh, not just on recruitment, but periodically during service and always had excellent results. Moreover, they were convinced that what they had seen was advanced German technology the Allies hadn't identified or predicted. None of them advanced a little green man theory. And to me, that's the most persuasive point for the whole story. They believe that despite the way the war was going, late-breaking Nazi scientific advancement had produced what they'd seen. Now, I was I trying to remember... On Ancient Aliens, in any of the episodes you've been involved with, did, do, have you had pilots or retired pilots or military folks? That's a good on? question. Um, what's nice is they interview me in isolation. Ah, yeah. <laughs> you know, in my lab. Um, so I, they probably have, though I don't remember one, because most of what they focus on is is the ancient, ancient aliens. Stuff, yeah. And so apparently our pilots weren't around back then in the past. Well, as far you as know. we know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're going to get to parallel universes in a minute. All right. There is some basis for credence for that belief from that era and after it, not only because sightings of this kind, by which I mean uh, experienced by multiple well-credentialed pilots, cynical and hard to shock of this type of phenomenon, were rather than sightings of UFOs generally ended when the war did. But also, since the programs run by Werner von Braun and his colleagues had produced the V-Run and V-2 rockets and the prototype V-3s, which were only on the drawing board but not actually deployed before Germany surrendered. So I think the point is even the super weapons that we did find out about after the war would not have behaved like this. Yeah. Uh, indeed, von Braun went on to design the Saturn V uh, vehicle that took the Apollo program to the moon when he went to the USA after the war. Footnote, an odd experience for a European is to visit Huntsville in Alabama and see the Von Braun Center. Often someone in modern life is castigated by the political left as an actual Nazi, who is not in fact an actual Nazi, but rather someone with whom they disagree. Whereas this is an actual Nazi, memorialized in stone, in the land of the free, in an age in which statues to almost everyone else are being pulled down. Now, you mentioned, Michael, that you don't do the physics of politics, so I will not ask you to comment <laughs> on the political left. Uh, but I'm just putting that on the record because this is what Alex wrote. All right. Uh, <clears throat> the V program rockets, even the V3, had no kind of control mechanisms that could allow them to track aircraft, fly in formation, turn on a dime in the air, and so on. The notion that the Nazis, scrupulous note keepers of all manner of things far worse in every other aspect of life, successfully developed these super aircraft and then successfully destroyed every scintilla of knowledge of them seems rather far-fetched. The objects seen repeatedly by these brave fighting men who had been trained in observation, which were so unlike the identified objects in the air seen by others in the decades since remains unexplained. And yes, the band is named after them. Right. <laughs> no, that's great. And what I love about that is, you know, the unexplained phenomena, UFO, uh, you know, unexplained flying objects, um, one big way to go is is sort of secret military technology. And I have a feeling some of them probably are that. There, at any given time, there is a certain level yeah. of secret military sure. technology around and stuff we don't see. Um, now, in this particular case, what I love about this are sort of two features, right? These bright lights, 
They're flying in formation. They're not detected by radar. We don't think there's something pilots have never seen. They tend to go away kind of when the war ends. Um, and rightfully, you know, it's a little hard to say, okay, Nazi technology when we don't have any. So I actually, despite being a friendly skeptic, have a new recent crazy idea about UFOs. Please. And it gives me a chance to mention my po the podcast I'm on again. Please. F-Triple-G-B-T. Um, fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technology. We will have that in the show notes for people yeah. that want to check it out. And we did an episode on the movie Nope. So a bit of a spoiler. If you haven't seen yeah. Nope, you may want to cover yours now. Um, the unidentified flying object turns out to be a biological creature. Yes. This is one of the rare times I went all in on this. I actually, I'm not a biologist, so I feel I can. Yeah. Um, when I thought about it, we don't look for life in the sky. We yeah. just don't. Yeah. Right? We look for it in the ocean. We look for it on the planet. I don't count birds. They're, they're land animals that, you know, happen to fly. Sprouted wings, yeah. Right. Um, and if you think about what creatures might do, right, um, particularly if they're at low density, they're going to have territory and move around. And if you think of UFO sightings, they tend to be in specific areas at specific times in history. So there's a checkbox. Um, almost like their territory. Only like their almost like their territory. It's completely reasonable the way radiation and wavelengths work that if they're the right size of material, they might not show up on radar. Mm -hmm. um, they are going to have flight capacity and maneuver. If they hunt in packs, they're going to look like they're in formation. So I, I don't know I don't know about you if I've convinced you, but I am I am very willing obviously to publicly make these strange statements that it's not aliens it's not scientific tech, I think we're talking biological creatures. Well, I hope this is the first time you've said this publicly. Well, unfortunately, I said ah, it in our Nope episode, ah, so it's close. Right, it's well, close. It's the first time I've said it in a you know in in a dangerous environment where I'm not on my own show with caveats. Yes. Well, we lawyers always say never ask a question you don't know the answer to already. But uh, uh, also supporting that theory is there's plenty of sea creatures that are bioluminescent, right? Exactly. And that might not be calculating strategically like a uh, like an alien intelligence would be. So they might not care if their lights are on. They exactly. might not even be control if their lights are on. And I'll do you one better because two days ago, we'll plug this in the show notes too, <laughs> I did a big uh, event for the American Bar Association. We were talking about the Chinese spy balloon. And mostly it was about legal stuff. So for you lawyers out there, it's awesome. For you others, it's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that we talked about was the fact that it's pretty clear now, I think, even from what the government has released, that when they found and shot down the second, third, and fourth object, and apologies to the Port Huron, Ohio Science Club for losing your balloon, um, <laughs> It was because they had never tuned the radars to look for objects at that altitude of that size. Right. And so, could be the same phenomenon here. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, something you said, very important from a science point of view that people have to understand, radiation, right, electromagnetic radiation is just light of different wavelengths. And what light can detect and see depends on how big it is relative to the wavelength. And radar right. is very, very long wavelength. So if you have smaller objects, it's just going to miss it. Right. It won't actually interact with it in a meaningful way. So even though the bright lights and night might suggest these things were bigger than the pilots thought, they could simply be too small to really register on the radar. All right. Maybe we can make a little bit of news here, even though you preempted <laughs> me with your podcast. If your theory now is that a lot of these sightings were of organic nature, are they Earth organic nature or are they alien organic nature? 
That gets trickier. You know, from my perspective, I, I think they're Earth simply because it's hard to imagine how these would actually um, travel through the vacuum of space. Being, being mostly organic in nature of some sort of biological life form, you know, great that you evolved in the atmosphere. Maybe there's not many of you. That's why we haven't bothered or detected you yet. Um, you know, there's a lot in the ocean we haven't found. Yeah. I know the ocean is deeper and harder to get to, but we haven't been in a lot of the atmosphere either. Um, getting through the vacuum of space is just harder to figure out, um, you know, how they would have done that um, and then still been alive when they got here. And would you say, is it too, too strong to say there would be almost sort of an inverse relationship between the likelihood that the organic being could have survived in space and the amount of metal or other detectable stuff that would have been on it? Yes, I like that. That is a very good way to say it. I'll take that. All right, fair. Okay, well, this is the perfect segue into the next part of our show. And by the way, every time we mention UFOs or UAPs, of course, our ratings go way up, so <laughs> I'm always happy to do a show about that. So as it turns out, even though we've talked about in, the, in Alex's story that a lot of these exact phenomenon were not sighted again after the war, of course, there have been many, many, many hundreds or thousands of sightings since then. And it turns out, perhaps partly inspired by the media reports of the Foo Fighters, in North America, there was a huge UFO craze in the 50s and early 60s, and also yeah. in, well, North America, Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Now, I believe both of us are too young to have actually been there. <laughs> However, I do have a very interesting book about these sightings called Flying Saucer Pilgrimage. Now, this book was self-published in, I believe, 1957. Uh, by a guy named Austin Bryant-Reeve and his wife, Helen Reeve. And Bryant-Reeve was a Princeton and MIT-educated physicist. Uh, or maybe, no, I think he was an engineer. Um, and uh, I guess did pretty well in business. So they basically just like took a sabbatical and they drove around the United States and Mexico for a year. And they just went and they interviewed everybody who had claimed to have seen a UFO or, or been probed, you know, as a <laughs> right. lot of them did. And apparently back in those days, speaking of the Foo Fighters, which could lead me to talk about Coachella, there were basically UFO conventions all over the place, like big tent revivals where you'd go, you'd buy little tchotchkes. You'd, okay. I don't know if they were talking about Area 51 by then or not, but you'd swap stories. And they were like social events. So Austin and Bryant Reeve drove around the country, recorded all these stories, and then published this book, both U.S. and Mexico. And you read the book... And by the way, it's like number 1.7 million something on Amazon. So it's <laughs> no real threat to more lessons from history. Uh, but you read the book and you're going along, you know, you're two thirds of the way through. And OK, it's wacky. I mean, there's the picture on the cover. Right. It's wacky. But all these two people are really doing is just writing down what people told them. So you're like, OK, well, take it with a grain of salt. They don't really pass judgment. Then you get about two thirds of the way through. <laughs> And there is like a 10 to 20 page single space transcript of the author's conversation with the aliens. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And by the way, it's good news. Uh, yeah. They're watching over us. They're very peaceful. They have a very evolved form of government uh, and they're going to take care of humans, which is good. They felt so strongly about this that they wrote, they, tell, they spent their own money from Mexico to send a telegram to President Eisenhower, which is reprinted in the book. And it says words to the effect of, 
hey, we really like you. We think you're the greatest president since George Washington. But how dare you at your press conference the other day dismiss the possibility of UFOs right. because your smart men at the Air Force told you that they weren't possible. So this was essentially a hundred, almost well, 70, 80 years ago, uh, a, a you know a petition to the government, and they spent their own money. And so I want to talk about the things that are in here, because a lot of this also gets into the multiverse, which I know you've talked about. We're going to yeah. get back to that. Um, but a lot of what's in here, because I just reread this recently, uh, is very similar to a lot of the theories that are discussed in Ancient Aliens. Now, here's the twist, which our viewers will know, but I hope you don't know. Austin and Bryant Reeve are my grandparents. Oh, I did not know yes. that. <laughs> and when I was a very young lad, eight years old, my first time out of the United States, my grandmother, who at this point had been, we thought very well off. My father was a minister, so what we thought was well off was, you know. Right. Uh, she took my dad and I on a tour of Mexico. And I don't remember a lot of it, but I still remember, like, scenes from it. And when I went back to read this book for another podcast about a year ago, there's pictures in it, and I remember those pictures. And so, obviously, now I understand. They're, they're long deceased, and so is my father. But... What, they, what she did is she took us on the greatest hits tour of, <laughs> of the, the Flying Saucer Pilgrimage. So I feel like I was UFOs in between the times UFOs were cool. Very cool. You know, it, it's an interesting thing. And I'll briefly connect it to something, you know, that happened, I, as I mentioned, because I like plugging myself. Yeah. Particularly after Extra Guinness. You know, I also do the physics and science of faith and religion. And that's the one book I wrote, which is also not threatening um, the but, more more lessons from history yet. But we'll be in the show notes. But we'll be in the show notes. You know, divine science, finding reason in the heart of faith. And one of the challenges in doing something like that, which I totally understand, is how do you distinguish all of, you know, the, just listening to you describe flying saucers, tents, revivals, right? How different is that from religion? Yeah. And in many regards, it's not. And I recently actually gave a talk on this, and I pointed out, at least from my perspective, on the faith side, we have to take that very seriously and rethink, you know, are we trying to talk about magic and things that really don't make sense? Or are we really talking about something a little more deeper, rational? People like to use spirituality versus just religion. Yeah. So there is an interesting challenge in that space. And so what I've loved for me about being on Ancient Aliens, ironically, is it's helped clarify my message around science and faith because if something I'm talking about is indistinguishable from UFOs, then I've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Well, of course, Arthur C. Clarke said uh, sufficiently advanced science will always look like magic or words to that effect. Yeah. And Hence I, the iPhone. Yes. <laughs> my, uh, my own view of this, being a minister's kid, is given that we're an offshoot of the Church of England and our church only exists because Henry VIII wanted a divorce, I ain't blowing shit on no one. <laughs> you know, believe what you want. Like, am I really going to church? Well, first of all, I don't because I usually have a tea time, but am I really going to church and eating the flesh and drinking the, you know? So all of these things are things that can't be proven. Yeah. And my dad would say to me, if they could be proven, there's no faith there. Yeah. Well, also, I think there's a big difference. This is something else that I love about going and talking about physics and science and stuff and why I love using superheroes. Um, there's a couple of things. One is there's only certain things science can actually prove or not prove. Um, and there's also some things that we do consider sort of fundamentally impossible versus technologically impossible. Mm -hmm. And technologically impossible is never actually impossible. It's just really hard. Right. And we usually figure it out. For a long time, people thought going faster than the speed of sound was just not going to work. Yeah. 
there was no physical physics reason about it. They just thought they wouldn't engineer it. Well, they did it. We do it. I hear we're getting commercial flights back. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> um, but also on this, this other sort of track, right, of is it proven? Is it faith? Is it belief? You know, that's a really interesting space to me because a lot of the UFO stuff, it's much more a detective story than it is a science issue. Yeah. Because people forget science is about being able to do repeatable experiments. Um, if I can't do a repeatable experiment, science may be involved in the edges and thinking about it, but it's really now a detective story. And there's a reason I'm not a detective. I wouldn't be a very good one, despite the cool hat. Well, I was going to mention the hat, yeah. more in the context of Indiana Jones and yep. ancient aliens and crystal skulls, but it works pretty well as a detective. I, yeah. I'm a little bit of a hobbyist around film noir and uh, cheap detective stories. <laughs> and in some future life, I plan to live over a CD bar with a neon <laughs> sign flashing in my window every night and just, you know, solve crimes. Yeah. That's my future. That's my retirement <laughs> plan. Thanks, UCI. Um, so let me just transition to at least one more thing, because we could go on right. forever with you, and I'm hoping you'll be back on when, when we make contact with the aliens. Exactly. One of the most fascinating ancient alien episodes I've seen, I think it's from 2020, is one in which you and others discuss a NASA paper explaining that if there had been advanced technological uh, civilizations on Earth, either extraterrestrial or not, over, I don't know, I forget, 80,000 years ago right. or something, we might well have no current science that can detect them. And I think there might actually be a JPL or a NASA project yeah. figuring out how. So talk about that, because that fascinates me. No, I think that was incredible. And it was one of those things I, this is what I love about doing Ancient Aliens, is I randomly learn new science stuff. I learned that. There's actually, for those who haven't seen the episode, there's a naturally occurring evidence of a sort of nuclear reactions in Africa in the way past. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and I went and talked to my nuclear physics friends and they said, yes, that could be real. So I was really excited to learn that. You know, part of it comes down to just how destructive um, geology and atmosphere and water can really be, right? And so if a civilization is old enough, um, it really does get wiped away. You know, we think of ruins, we think of stuff, you know, we're talking maybe 10,000 years old right. at most, right? This was actually, I think, talking millions of years old. We forget how old the earth is. Yeah. I had a great experience um, doing a tour, I think it was in Sedona, that was actually led by a, a geologist, and he was talking about how old the different rock layers were. And it was numbers that, even to me as a physicist, like, made no sense. Yeah. Right? I'm like, I forget. Yeah, millions is a number I can use for this. Yeah. Um, and so just how much, you know, we talk about plastic lasting forever. No, it doesn't. It's just on the time scale that we care about. Yeah. Right? It lasts forever. So, and once something has eroded that much, what are you going to use to detect it? It's going to be incredibly hard. So I think this NASA project is trying to determine what new types of detection we could create that could find such yeah. things. So one of the things you might ask about, and this is how they found the nuclear reaction in Africa, right, is isotopes matter, ratios of things matter. Um, even if it's been ground to dust, what's in the dust might matter. Um, we know pretty well, you know, stellar evolution, planetary evolution, what's the ratio of all the different materials. And so if you find a spot where there's a high concentration of, you know, whether it's iron or certain carbon byproducts, um, perhaps in a single layer under the earth in a weird spot, you might say, okay, yeah, this is kind of a signature that there was something here before. 
Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And uh, I just hope I live long enough uh, that my grandparents are proven right in some of this <laughs> stuff, especially the part about how the aliens are just trying to help us and protect us and they have an advanced civilization. Well, there's one thing I'd like to say to that, because that aligns with my one theory I have. People always ask me, you know, do you think there are extraterrestrials? And I'm definitely the skeptic who thinks they're out there, but not here. Whole nother episode. Yeah. We could talk yeah. about that. But lately, I've also kind of developed the view, and this is a purely, you know, sociological guess, and I'm a physicist, so take it for what it's worth. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a Guinness and a half in, so it's even better. Um, That's why people watch the show. But I do think, you know, I look at our own trajectory. At some point, I hope we achieve space travel. I ironically went into physics because I really wanted to actually travel in space. I don't know why I decided to study foam. It's not getting me any closer. Um, but when I look at, and I know I said I don't do the physics of politics, I'll make a brief reference here. You know, things are pretty tense right now. Yeah. There's a lot of conflict on both yeah. sides. The coordination and technology it would take to successfully travel through space, I think requires a social evolution that we haven't hit yet. Um, and I think it's more likely that a truly peaceful sort of species that has figured out how to work together and maximize cooperation is much more likely to solve space travel than a more militaristic conquest oriented yeah. one. Um, again, that's just my gut feeling, but I think I do that to feel safe. If the aliens ever do show up, yeah. they'll be nice because otherwise they would have wiped themselves well, that, out before they got here. Yeah, I mean, I've always, I have no science background or capability at all, but my belief has always been that any society who could get here from wherever else outside our solar system or even Jupiter, uh, could have destroyed us if they wanted to. Yeah. So either they must not want to, which is great, <laughs> or like we're too boring for them to either focus on, which is right. also okay because they probably won't wipe us out, or we're actually in the matrix of someone else's <laughs> science experiment. And I, I didn't research this before the show. I'll try to find something to put in the show notes, but I've read like a letter or a paper or something by some scientist, I forget what type, I think... Um, what do you call it, a subatomic physicist, who have said that they've detected things at the most high-resolution electron microscope level that are fuzzier than they should look. <laughs> and I believe these, and I might be totally making this up, so if, if I am, it's just a fun story audience, right. but I'll try to put it in the show notes. I believe they went on to say, we don't want to do this research anymore because if we're <laughs> right and the people running the experiment know we're right, they'll just cancel Definitely the experiment. experiment. Well, I, I will say this is something I, I put in my book because I'm getting very good at, you know, self-promotion here. That's being uh, great. You know, I, I know Descartes famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. I realized I'm not as confident as him. Um, my version of that is, I think, therefore something is. Um, I may be real or I may be a computer simulation, but the fact that I'm thinking means something is doing the work, whether it's a computer program, really me some puppet controlling me. I don't know, right? Um, and my only evidence that I am not a computer simulation or program is as interesting as I think my life is, I have a feeling it would be very boring to those running the simulation. And so the fact that I'm still going probably means I'm real. Well, I'll give you a piece of counter evidence, <laughs> which is I've had the experience frequently lately where I hit what I know for sure is a perfect down the middle drive on the golf course. <laughs> 
and somehow my ball is not in the middle of the fairway. No, I well, I experienced that by the matrix with every <laughs> with every drive. No, actually, I have the otter effect, which is I finally figured out how to drive into the fairway, and I can't hit a fairway wood. Um, you, you know, get hybrids. And well, no, I did, and I could hit those for about three days, and then I started thinking about it. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> and that proves now. quantum mechanics is real, right? If you think too hard about your golf shot, it doesn't do what you expect. Yeah. I think, therefore, I bogey. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. All right. So two last things, and and since you yourself stepped into the physics of politics, I have right. to ask. This is a debate I have all the time with my woke, ultra woke daughters, and with uh, lots of people I know, and that is. I'm not going to ask you to comment on Elon Musk specifically, because that's too hot even for our show. <laughs> but my view is, whatever else the guy's doing with his power and his money and his political beliefs, somebody has to be figuring out how humanity is going to get off this planet. Because whether it's climate change or supernova or nuclear war, one day this ain't going to be our home anymore. Yes. Oh, I am totally with you. And in fact... That was a softball question that you didn't even know it was because my college... Well, maybe I did. Or maybe you did. My college essay that got me into some very top schools um, that I wrote in, I'll, I'll say it, in the 80s, so people know roughly how old I am. We're the same. Um, started with a quote from Star Trek, Space the Final Frontier, and was about how if the human race wants to save itself at all, we're going to have to figure out space travel and, and colonize the universe. So, so I totally, I'm with you on that. Someone has to do it. Um, now, whether it's Elon Musk or not, I yeah. don't know. Well, you've definitely channeled Gene Roddenberry a lot in yeah. this discussion. It's, it's quite apparent. And uh, all right, well, now I have to ask you, Star Trek Picard, thumbs up, thumbs down. Yo, know, it's really embarrassing. I haven't seen it yet. I need to. Um, but my, my life has been sufficiently busy the last few weeks, a uh, few weeks, few months, few years. Um, I do like to, you know, claim it was interesting to be a vice provost of teaching during a global pandemic where we had to figure out how to complete yeah. and teach differently in one week. Um, it was a good lead time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, that's on my list to do. I am of the generation that I am both Star Trek and Star Wars, which confuses some people. Um, I've been I've been binging and catching up on all the Star Wars stuff on Disney Plus, but I got to get over to the card shop. Okay, well now I have to ask Battlestar Galactica. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Not the cheesy one from the seventies, but the one from. I, I loved both. I oh. was I was young enough in the seventies to oh. love the cheesy one yeah, in the seventies. Dog, yeah. Exactly. You know. But the Edward James almost one. That's some of the best TV I think ever yeah. made. No, I I love that. Um, I've really, my, my daughter's got me on, I, I missed all the animated Star Wars stuff. So I mm. re-caught up on that during the pandemic. Lego Star Wars also? Lego Star Wars I love, yeah, that I did not miss. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, putting your academic hat on for a minute, slightly more serious vein, it, for people, especially young girls and women who want, who have some interest in STEM, a, like, what is the best way to pursue your dream there? And B, what is the best science fiction to watch to inspire you? I think that, I know the answer to number two. Oh, that's a good question. Best science fiction to watch to inspire you. Um, you know, I, I do think um, some of the new Star Wars stuff on TV is pretty cool from my perspective. Yeah, um, and there's some cool tech in it. Um, Look, you do cybersecurity, it would inspire you to actually make sure the Empire and Republic had cybersecurity. Because <laughs> the fact that a droid can, can just come up and plug into anything and hack the system yeah. is very strange. Um, but it is a galaxy a long time ago. Right. 
probably before they had cybersecurity. You know, what's interesting is I think one of the things that has always been true, um, math has always been this gateway to STEM. It's something you really want to pay attention to. But I think we're in a shifting moment in time, and I hope universities catch up. It's one of the yeah. things I'm really pushing for is the computer does most of the stuff that we used to have to do as scientists. And really, it's about creativity. Yeah. It's about creativity and perseverance. The biggest thing, the biggest characteristic you have to have as a scientist is be willing to have things go wrong. Yeah. Because 90% of the time, the experiment doesn't work. Um, the project doesn't work. Something goes wrong. Um, a big one, it's not a problem anymore because we switched to digital. I, I, I lost a lot of data as a grad student because I would change the cable so I could watch my VHS tape <laughs> and I would not take it back from output to input mm -hmm. and I'd go record the experiment and it would be going in the output channel right. and nothing would record. So things just go wrong. And I think that is often the, the part where people, particularly if you're not convinced you're going to be a scientist and you start having things go wrong, you, you take the wrong message from that. You get re affirm that maybe this isn't for you, you forget that it's happening for all of us. Yeah. Um, because by the time you get older like me, you fake it. Like you you, you forget to mention the things that went wrong. Of course. Yeah. And right, you just talk about the things that went well and, and students don't see that process. And that is so key. That would be my number one advice for people is, is persevere. So interesting. I have two 20 something daughters, early 20 something daughters. They couldn't be more different. My older daughter is a singer, songwriter, actor, went to the Tisch School at NYU. My younger daughter is a NOAA scientist. <laughs> and my older daughter struggled immensely with the rejection of right. being an actor and a songwriter. My younger daughter, she it just rolled right off. Yep. You know, and I think that's gotta be the influence of the scientific training and method on her. No, it really is. And it's really interesting you mentioned that because a fun project I did years ago and, and we hope to revive it is I partnered with um, professor in, in drama Jane Page who led the directing program and what we did was she taught taught a grad level course on directing the directors would be paired with a, a science lab wow and they would have two weeks to come up with a 10-minute stage production around what happened in the lab or in the group or the research it was really interesting to see yeah where they went with things um, it was really interesting to see my lab portrayed on stage. It was actually very well done. But in the in sort of the post kind of debrief, one of the number one things the drama students said was, to your point, they didn't realize that close similarity where both they and the scientists have to deal with failure so often. Yeah. It was a really eye-opening moment for them. The other fun one, one of them spent most of the time going to group meetings where there were multiple birthday celebrations. And there was this weird moment. She's like, oh, wow, they're people, too, and they celebrate stuff. I'm like, yes, we do. We eat birthday cake. <laughs> Spoiler. We drink, we drink Guinness. And we drink Guinness. World, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this you've been very generous with your time. I can't help but ask one last question. As a physicist, as an ancient aliens expert, as a professional skeptic, is it possible that 100,000 years from now, a key record of our current civilization at this moment in time could be people's treasured recordings of the Hidden History Happy Hour. Oh, definitely. It, it has to be. I'm sure it will be. The only thing that might prevent that is computers are moving too fast and people might not have a way to play it. Yeah. But other than that, it, I, I, I'm totally with that. I think it will be. All right, Michael Denon, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, everybody.
Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Corr, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.